Bible, the scriptures are the inspired, inerrant word of God for us, that you've revealed yourself to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. And so, Father, as we come and we hear your voice in the pages of Scripture, we pray that you would use it to make us more like Christ. We pray that you'd take the Scriptures, take the truth of the Scriptures, and by your Holy Spirit, that you would conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, we know that your word is true, so we pray that you would sanctify us by the truth together this morning. And we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I would like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. As you're probably aware, uh, Romans 12.1 is a crucial turning point in the book of Romans as a whole. Uh, Paul just spent, in the book of Romans, 11 chapters explaining God's amazing plan of salvation. Those 11 chapters of the first 11 chapters of Romans are really the most theologically rigorous explanation of how a man can find forgiveness from a holy God. And primarily, those chapters center on theological explanations. But in chapter 12, everything gets practical. Chapter 12 and the following chapters of, of Romans are full of commands. In light of everything that God has done for us in Christ, now Paul says, look, here is how we are to live. And so chapters 1 through 11 are really theological doctrinal truth, and chapters 12 through 16 are primarily applicational truth that comes in the form of commands. And all of this begins with verse 1. So look at Romans 12, 1 with me. Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So Paul's argument is, in light of all that God has done for us in Christ, because of the overwhelming mercies that we have received, he says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. This is the sacrifice that we are now to give to the Lord. We're no longer slaughtering bulls and goats like was done in the Old Testament covenantal system. Now we present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to the Lord. Our lives are the offering, and particularly our lives of holiness. Holy lives are the offering. And it's not as if just Christians merely living is the offering that God desires. It's not, it's not as if just merely breathing air is what God wants us to do. No, it's that we would live holy lives. Holy lives, Christ-like lives that bring him glory. And so with a view towards everything that we have received in Christ, all of the grace that we have been given, we then turn and offer up holy lives as a sacrifice to the Lord. And indeed, as the end of the verse says, this is our spiritual service of worship. The English Standard Version here reads, this is your spiritual worship. Or the NIV here reads, this is your true and proper worship. Our whole lives offered up to the Lord is our worship to him. Therefore, we would say that worship, our worship, ought to be so much more than mere singing. We should never unduly limit our worship to the Lord as to what we do when we gather on the Lord's Day and sing together. All of our lives, even mundane activities like making a cup of coffee or unloading the dishwasher, all of these things can be done for the glory of God and therefore our worship. So what we do when we gather on the Lord's Day as a congregation, as a church, and when we sing to the Lord, it's really just a subset of our entire life of worship. Our, our corporate praise or our congregational singing like we've just been doing here this morning is just a subset of our entire lives offered up to the Lord in worship. 
So when we gather as a church to worship the Lord together, we gather to continue doing what we've really been doing all week long. We're just continuing to worship the Lord, except now we're corporately singing praises to him. And by that, I don't mean we necessarily need to be singing, of course, all week long, although that certainly would be a good thing to do, to sing all week long. But no, I mean that our lives are constantly an offering to the Lord if we live them in a Christ-like, holy way. So to take this even one step further, we might say, if we fail to worship the Lord throughout all of the week, if we don't live our lives in a way that's pleasing to him, and if our hearts are far from him all week long, then we can be certain that God is not pleased when we gather and when we sing to him on the Lord's day. Indeed, such worship would really be hypocritical and pharisaical, no matter how externally pleasing it might look. Indeed, Jesus quoted from the book of Isaiah to the Pharisees of his own day these words in the book of Matthew. He said, you hypocrites. He said, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. That's what Jesus said of them. So according to Jesus, external forms of worship ought to match and flow out of a heart that has been worshiping God all week long, continually worshiping him by living a holy life. And if it does not, then our Lord calls it vain worship, or we might say worthless worship. And so on the Lord's Day, when we gather as a church, our corporate praises to the Lord is really just, again, a subset of our entire life of worship. But nonetheless, when we gather on the Lord's Day and praise the Lord, it is a unique time in our, in our week where we collectively sing our praises to the Lord as the saints of God, as a church. It is a unique time. The New Testament teaches that our singing ought to encourage and really instruct those around us as we sing. For example, one of the primary passages on singing in the church is found in Colossians chapter 3. We already read it this morning, Colossians 3.16. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So again, this is a key passage on this subject of congregational singing as the church ought to do when they're gathered. And here we see there's a vertical component to our singing. We're singing with hearts of thankfulness to God. We're singing with thankful hearts to our Heavenly Father. But there's also a horizontal component to our singing. There's a component where we minister and we instruct those around us through our singing. It says we teach and we admonish one another through our singing. So we should be, when we come and we gather on the Lord's Day and we sing songs, we should be deliberately singing out loud to encourage those around us. As I've mentioned before, in our times of corporate worship, if you just mumble in your singing, just barely mouthing the words, then you can be certain that you're not encouraging anyone. If a newcomer was to come and to attend with us and watch you intently as you sing, they might say, look at that guy. He doesn't believe this. His wife just drug him here. That's what's going on. But, but, it, if, but if, on the other hand, if you're belting out your singing to the Lord and your face is full of joy and you're singing from your heart, then they'll look at you and say, that guy believes this stuff. He, he really believes it. This is true. And in so doing, we also administer to those around us. We encourage those around us as we sing out to the Lord. So, so we sing. We sing on the Lord's Day. And we sing even if we sing badly. We sing nonetheless because we're commanded to sing. I, for one, just personally speaking, am not a natural-born singer. I, I can attest to that. My, my voice in song, I think, is rather plain, Knowing that God calls us all to sing, I wish it were different, honestly. Uh, my musical abilities in, in general are really quite underdeveloped, I might say. 
But for all the time I think about I spent with a basketball in my hands growing up, I wish I had spent more time learning to sing, singing uh, and learning to read music and things like that. Uh, I'll confess to my shame, my musical training as a youngster amounted to about three weeks of sixth grade band class. Uh, By the end of the third week, all of the other kids in class had mastered hot cross buns. But I had fallen miserably behind. And I thought, this is it. I'm hanging up my trumpet. That's done right here. And somehow I convinced my parents, not for me. And they acquiesced to my wishes. But that was it. But knowing that God is concerned about our singing and how we sing and that we're instructed to sing in both the Old Testament and the New, this is an area that I've sought to grow in. I want to lead us effectively as a church in our singing as just an area that I oversee and care about. Therefore, I'm always looking for opportunities to be more greatly equipped in my ability to lead our singing and oversee it. And in February, as I've mentioned before, several of us traveled to a a pastor's conference. And during this four-day-long conference, near the end of our time together, they offered several intensive just uh, classes to just instruct pastors on various things. And one of those topics was on leading congregational singing or planning congregational singing. And I just was so excited to, to be there and to learn from that event. And the seminar opened with one of the pastors of that church giving an exponent, uh, really an exposition of Psalm 95, Psalm 95. And in this 30 or so minute introduction into the seminar on music worship would really prove to be one of my highlights from that whole conference. As this pastor just opened up Psalm 95 and explained it, and the more that I clearly understood Psalm 95, the more I was greatly encouraged and strengthened and really challenged as I reflected on my own heart. And I knew immediately that I wanted to come home, study Psalm 95 so that I could then share it with all of you. And that is what I would like to do today. So if you would, please turn with me back to the Old Testament to Psalm 95. Psalm 95 was not a psalm that I had ever studied in detail in the past. However, I will say it's a psalm that I've been familiar with. In fact, on numerous occasions, I've used Psalm 95 as the opening text that I use as a call to worship to to open our worship service. That is, I'd say, I I use the first half of the psalm. The second half of the psalm has always been a bit of an enigma to me. You see, the first half of the psalm is a blissful, joy-filled call to worship. The second half of the psalm, by contrast, seems to really be a bit of an interruption in that corporate worship service. But if we rightly understand the importance of the final four verses, our understanding of our corporate call to worship God through all of our lives, I believe will be greatly strengthened. So I'd like you to follow along with me as I read Psalm 95 aloud. So please follow along in your own copy of God's word. It says this, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our Lord, our maker, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, when they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart, And they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. 
This psalm really divides up into three, three sections, each of them beginning with an invitation. In the opening words of verse 1, we see the first invitation. Look at it there. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. And then, it, really, this is really more of a command, but it functions like an invitation. But see a second one in verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. And then in the final line of verse 7, we find this command. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We could call that an invitation, but really it's a, it's a warning. And so that is what we have here. Three invitations, or we might say two invitations and a warning. So Psalm 95 contains three invitations. Uh, invitations to relate to God rightly in worship. Three invitations to relate to God rightly in worship. And if we understand our duty as Christians to worship God, offering our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God, then understanding and accepting Psalm 95's three invitations to worship uh, should then rightly be paramount in our lives. We should seek to understand these calls to worship and make sure they're true of our own lives. So let us again look at verse 1 uh, to consider this first invitation. And I'm calling this first invitation an invitation to joyful exaltation. Joyful exaltation. Look at verse 1 again with me. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Just, just note the mood of this verse. It's one of acclamation and thanksgiving. We're, we're commanded to come. Let, let us sing for joy to Yahweh. And this here, this singing is a, is a loud cry of jubilation. This is like a, a ringing shout of joy to Yahweh. And note that this is the personal name for God here. This is, this is you'll see it, those all capital letters, L-O-R-D. This is not a title for God like we often see, like the word God, Elohim, it just means God. Or, or the, another title like Adonai, which means He's master, he's Lord, but this is God's name. When we see this in our Old Testament, God's Lord, written in all capital letters, it means Yahweh, that's the word here, which is God's name, the name he gave his people to call him by his personal name. For example, you might call someone in church, you might say to them, hey brother, good to see you today. That, that's a title. His name is not brother. You're just calling him brother. That's a title. But if you refer to him by his name, if you said, Sam, it's good to see you today. And now you're calling him by his personal name. It's special. It's more personable. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's referring to Yahweh by his personal name, signifying that, it, that it's our joy to sing to Yahweh and to Yahweh alone. And not any of the other false gods that the pagan peoples worship, but to Yahweh. And the parallel in verse 1 is very similar. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us shout in triumph. Uh, this term was also used for a, a war cry in battle. This is a, a joyful shout. And notice that this is another loud term. One commentator I read on verse 1 said this. He said, our English versions of verse 1 are for the most part too calm. Both verbs in verse 1 call for loud, enthusiastic, joyful praise given to Yahweh. So we're called here to sing joyfully out loud to the rock of our salvation. That is the unchanging, consi consistent one who has saved us, who has extended his grace and mercy to us, the rock of our salvation. Now look at verse 2, it continues. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. So let, let us go before the Lord's presence. Literally, let us go before his face with thanksgiving. Or, or rightly, with songs filled with thanksgiving. God desires that we sing songs of thankfulness to him. We saw this in the New Testament as well. 
Colossians 3.16. But here we're called, let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Let us shout to him with, with songs of praise. This is what the ancient Hebrews were called to do. And this is what, what we're called to do in the church. And we could say this is rightly what every human on the planet should be doing. Lifting their voices in praise to God. And we have to ask ourselves, is this true of us? Do we shout joyfully to the Lord in our worship, in our corporate worship gatherings? Do verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 95 describe our singing? Does it describe your singing? Because it ought to, clearly. And if you say, well, why? Why should I sing to God like well, that? Why should I sing to God like this? Well, that's where the psalmist goes next. Look at verse 3. For, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And it says, in whose hand are the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it is he who made it. And his hands formed the dry land. So here's the reason that we should give up joy-filled praises to God. Our God, Yahweh, is not only is he doubly great, he's vastly superior to every other so-called God on the earth. He is the great king, meaning he's the king over all the other pagan gods. He's the God king of the universe. Those kings, of course, are really just created things, those gods of the earth. Things like people worshiping the sun or the moon or the stars or rivers or animals or forces of nature or worshiping other men. But God, in contrast to all those things, God is the one who created all those things. And so no one can be compared to Yahweh. Psalm 113 reads in a similar way, Yahweh is above all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like Yahweh our God? We would say, of course, there's no one like him. And Psalm 95 makes this point for us. It goes on, in Yahweh's hands are the depths of the earth, and the peaks of the mountains are also his. Meaning, the depths of the earth really refers to the unexplored, deepest crevices that we find on the earth. Like the the deepest oceanic trench that's never been explored by man, darkest dark that you could find. God knows it intimately because God created it, all of it. That's the psalmist's point. He knows those deepest, darkest places in the ocean, and he also knows the highest peaks. He, he knows them all. He, from, from the bottom of the sea to the top of the highest mountain range, all of it is God's. He owns it all, which is true also that which is true of this vertical direction is also true of the horizontal from sea to dry land. It all belongs to God. Look again at verse 5. The sea is his, for it is he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Again, this is the reason that we lift up our praise to the Lord. We'd say, if you don't like singing, if you don't like joyfully praising God, well, too bad. This is, what we're, this is what God deserves. He's worthy of our, our worship. He's the creator of all things. He owns everything. So these are the reasons to sing out joyfully to the Lord, at least on Sunday mornings. This is just what we do. This is what we ought to do. It's really the only fitting thing for us to do. If we could only just rightly ascribe to God a, a mere fraction of who he, who he is, if we understood this God of ours then we would rightly be worshiping him like this. We'd be shouting joyfully to the Lord in song and praise. You see, some people seem to argue that we ought to sing and worship sort of as staunch statues devoid of just any emotion whatsoever. And certainly Psalm 95 just disproves that notion entirely. Sure, we know of corporate worship settings and churches that fall into the opposite ditch. This is probably most common in our day, where just everything in the corporate worship gathering of the church is all just built around emotion. It's all really just emotional-ism. Individualistic emotional experiences really are what characterizes a a lot of churches. And we would say we we don't want that. We don't want emotion-driven worship 
but we want emotion-filled worship, according to Psalm 95. And again, if, if we rightly understand who God is and all that he's done for us, then we will not be able to keep back from worshiping him with our emotions, to be joy-filled in our worship. So some might raise their hands to express this emotion. Some just might have it on their face. But whatever the way, we should be joyfully singing to the Lord. All I really care about is that we joyfully sing and loudly sing our praises out to the Lord and encourage one another through our sings because that's what we're commanded to do. So, of course, we, yeah, we shouldn't work ourselves into an emotional frenzy. That we see that. No, we should not do that. But nor should we sing like a bunch of Christian nutcracker soldiers just moving our mouths up and down, just sort of just blandly singing songs. Let us not do that. We, we sing to the praise with, with loud, joyful shouts of praise. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're invited to do. We, we're to worship God like that. So that's the first invitation of Psalm 95. It's an invitation to joy-filled worship. But next we find an invitation to humble adoration. Worshiping God through humble adoration. Look at verse 6 in your own Bible. It says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Although our English translations render the first word of, first word of verse 6 as come, it's actually a different, different word than we saw in verse 1. It's maybe better thought of as the word enter. Again, this is an invitation to enter into the Lord's presence. And this opening command in verse 6 this call to, to come or to enter is followed by three invitations or three calls. Let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker. And each of these verbs in verse 6 express a physical movement of the body, lowering oneself before God. The first verb here translated as let us worship basically has the idea of bowing oneself low to the ground in devotion to the living God. And the second verb is very similar. It's also the idea of bow down in reverent worship. Make yourself low in God's presence. And then finally, let us kneel before him. Let us go to our knees before him, submitting ourselves before one. So, so each of these terms picture the body bent in just awestruck humility. And this is an invitation to humble adoration of lowering ourselves in just abject humility before the Lord. And now in the course of this psalm, it seems like in this worship service, it's like he's reached a point where it's, it's now time to close our mouths. Just bow before him in reverent worship. Make ourselves low just maybe signifying our insignificance before a holy God. We are nothing before him. We have no claims upon God. He owes us nothing. He is the all-wise potter, and we are the mere clay. He is our maker. He is our creator. And we are just his creatures, the objects that he created. And so then the psalmist gives us a reason why we ought to be characterized by this purest humility before God. Look at verse 7. It says there, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. In other words, he owns us. We're his people. He's Lord over us. And specifically us. So I think whether that's ancient Hebrew Israelites or or today, the church, he, he owns us. He is our Lord and Master. We are his chosen people, and we are in a covenant relationship with this God of all the universe. We are his special people whom he shepherds in his pasture. Again, we're, we're his sheep. I think rightly here, our minds are drawn to Psalm 23. It says, Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides 
quiet waters. He restores my soul, for he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is our great God shepherd. He's over us, caring for us. We're the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. So this is our God who so graciously brought us into his family and who shepherds us in all of our life. And the appropriate response then, again, is humility before him, just abject humility. This is the right response of worship. And I would argue this is a a humility that transcends all of life. You see, those who don't see themselves as much before God will also not see themselves as much before other people. Humble people before God are humble people before men as well. True humility cannot be limited to one area of a person's life. It pervades everything. It pervades this type of holiness. It really just pervades every area of their life. A person who rightly worships God will be preeminently humble. Their lowliness before God will permeate every area of their life. So then at the end of verse 7, we come to a bit of an interruption. So we've been joyfully singing and then bowing low in humble, humble adoration. And now this, look at verse, uh, this second half of verse 7. It says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as in the days of Massa in the wilderness, When your fathers tested me and they tried me through, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, they shall not enter my rest. We say, wow, what a downer of a conclusion to this psalm. I mean, what happened? How about... How did those lofty thoughts of worship and Yahweh being our shepherd now turn to this? As if the psalmist just sort of pulled the emergency brake, getting our attention. He gives us here an invitation of sorts, but it's really more of a warning. It's an invitation to submissive faith. That's what I'm calling it, an invitation to submissive faith. And this really might be the most important part of this psalm, the part that we need to catch The psalmist, he he jerks our attention with the word today. Today. It's an urgent appeal. Today, if you hear his voice, if you would just listen to Yahweh, do not harden your hearts. You you know this, but but in the Bible, the heart is really the control center of all of our lives. It's where it governs our thinking, our, our thoughts, our desires, our ambitions. The Bible uses the term heart to describe all of our emotions, our will, our, our thinking again, all of these things. So when he says, to do not harden your heart, to harden your heart before the Lord is to resist the Lord's will for your life. It's like God telling Moses to proclaim to Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh saying in response, no, I'm not doing that, no. Pharaoh hardened his heart. But the psalmist here cites a particular example of a place where Israel, in her past, hardened her heart. He says, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. And then in verse 9, God speaks for himself describing what happened there. He says, when your fathers tried me, they tested me, though they had seen my work. And at this point, we do well to back up here into the Old Testament to investigate what exactly occurred at Meribah and what happened in the, in the day of Massa in the wilderness. So the key passage here is really found in Exodus chapter 17. But for now, turn with me back to the beginning of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, the second book in, in your Bible there. Exodus chapter 1, and as you'll recall, in Exodus, the book begins with Israel in bondage. And in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, there's a description of the slave labor that Israel was under in Egypt. And it's 
good for us to just be reminded of their life there in Egypt. So look at it with me, verses uh, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And I'm just going to read for a moment from the Legacy Standard Bible, which just rightly captures the emphasis of this passage. But look at it in your own Bible, verse 13, Exodus chapter 1. So the Egyptians brutally compelled the sons of Israel to slave labor. And they made their lives bitter with hard slave labor in mortar and bricks and in all kinds of slave labor in the field and their slave labor which they brutally compelled them to do. So four times Moses uses the word slave labor to describe the misery of Israel. And then look at the end of chapter 2, and uh, beginning in verse 23. Look there. Look at verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and took notice of them. It's important for us to remember the conditions of Exodus 1 and 2, because it will not take long for Israel to forget these conditions. As you know, in the book of Exodus, God would use his servant Moses to miraculously draw his people out of, out of Egypt and in Exodus 14, God crushes Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army as he closes the Red Sea on top of them. And one would think that as a result of all the miracles that Yahweh did on behalf of his people, like walking through dry land on the midst of the Red Sea or being led in the wilderness by a pillar of fire, that the people would have had just an unshakable trust in Yahweh. Just a rock-solid confidence that he would provide for them. But as you know, that is not what happened. Now look at chapter 16. Chapter 16, and look at verse 2. Exodus 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by Look at this, by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Uh, and note here again who they're grumbling against. Uh, look, look also now at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when the people prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the sons of Israel, At evening time you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? I mean, notice that the people are grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but ultimately, Yahweh interprets it as grumbling against him. And the people, they're just grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but God says it's grumbling against me. And this is reiterated in verse 8. Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but are against Yahweh. So here, despite their grumblings against their God, in chapter 16, it goes on to detail God's provision of quail and, and manna for the people of Israel. God gives them bread out of heaven to sustain them in the wilderness. And just to make it crystal clear that this is a miraculous provision of the Lord daily, God makes it stop on one day of the week. On the seventh day, there would be no manna just to show the people again how powerful God was over all of this. This was God's provision for them. So again, we might expect that Israel now would have learned to trust in the Lord. But sadly, in the very next chapter, the grumbling of chapter 16 is repeated in chapter 17. Look at verse 
1 of chapter 17. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? Notice once again that the people are quarreling with Moses, but he replies, Why are you testing Yahweh? And look how it continues in verse 3. The people thirsted there for water. They grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So notice Moses gave a special name to this place. He, he called it Massa and Meribah, which is just, Massa means test, and Meribah means quarreling or striving and again it's striving against Yahweh the people were accusing Yahweh's integrity they were expressing their unbelief in his ability to meet their needs the people doubted that God would provide for them again and so they grumbled and they murmured against the Lord and it came out in their rebellious attitudes towards him and their accusations against God and God's appointed leaders so they, they tested God, meaning they questioned him. They doubted him. And all of this reveals the fact that they had a very weak faith. They had no confidence in the covenant promise given to their forefather. And despite all of God's miraculous provision, his redemption of them out of Israel, his provision of manna, his provision of water, they still hardened their hearts. We know this because of the grumbling of Massa and Meribah keeps occurring. I want, you to, I want to show you three other occasions where Massa and Meribah just occur on repeat. And they're all in the book of Numbers. Look, for example, at Numbers chapter 11. So two more books to the right in your Bibles. Numbers chapter 11. Here the, the people of Israel were traveling through the wilderness to the promised land, that is the land of, of milk and honey, a rich land. And in chapter 13, Israel would finally reach that land. But in chapter 11, we're still dealing with the grumbling and complaining hearts of the people of Israel. In my Bible, over chapter 11, I've written the, the subtitle, The Graves of Greediness. The Graves of Greediness. And you'll see why. Look, at, look with me at verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taborah, which means burning, because of the fire of the Lord that burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone and there's nothing at all to look at except this manna. These poor Israelites God providing bread from heaven over them. Look how it continues in verse 10. Now Moses heard the people weeping. I think that's a weeping of complaining throughout their families. Each man at the doorway of his tent and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you been so hard on your servant and why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of this people on me? 
Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries her nursing infant to the land which you swore to your fathers? Notice here Moses is also complaining. Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they wept, they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry this burden because it's too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. So Moses just had enough. He just says, God, just take me out. I can't, I can't handle it anymore. God would provide some help in the few, next few verses from others in Israel. But look at verse 18. Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept or complained in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt. Think again, remember how they were in Egypt. We were well off in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat, not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and it becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and you have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, the people among you who I am are 600,000 on foot. And you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And jump ahead to verse 31. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. And the people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who had gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was still being was, was still between their teeth. Before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because they buried, buried the people there who had been greedy. Very interesting. Kibroth Hatava means graves of greediness. Greed often implies money in our ear, but the Israelites here lusted after what God withheld from them. They lusted after things they did not have. They lusted after what God had sovereignly deprived them of. They mentioned the fish and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the garlic. And in all of this lusting after this food, they sort of whitewash their former slavery and talk like it wasn't that bad after all. And they actually desired to go back under slavery. And all of this lusting after things that God did not give them brought into question God's faithfulness. It, it tested God. And I think the lesson for us to take note is, is when, when, when God divinely deprives you of something and we complain, either against man or against God, understand that it questions God's faithfulness. And it's really rebellion against God. When we catch ourselves complaining, we do well to remind ourselves that we're testing God. We are questioning his goodness and his provision for us in our lives. And so again, Numbers 11 is just Masa and Meribah on repeat. And we see it again in chapter 13. In chapter 13 of Numbers, turn there, Moses sends spies in to view out the promised land. You know the story, but but look at the report of the spies when they come back, beginning in verse 25 of chapter 13. It says, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of the 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. 
And thus they told them and said, We went into the land you sent us, and certainly it does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Recall that they had brought out great fruit from the land, two men carrying one cluster of grapes, it says. So great fruit in the land. But verse 28, look at it. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and their cities are fortified and very large. And moreover there, we saw the descendants of Anak there. This is a giant people. Amalek is living in the land of Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. And then then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone, in spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants. And, and all, the, all the people who we saw in it are men of great size. There also are the, the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our sight. And so we were... So we were in their sight. We were like grasshoppers before this giant people. Look how it continues in chapter 14, verse 1. Again here, here's the spies failing to trust the Lord. But look at it. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword, our wives and our little ones to become plunder? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Get rid of Moses, new leader. Let's go back. So then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephthunah, And of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, then then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of this land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But how did the people respond to these pleadings of Joshua and Caleb? Look at verse 10. But all the congregation said to to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meaning to all the sons of Israel. And so here we find God's response. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I'll make you into a, a greater nation and mightier than they. Moses would go on to plead for Israel's forgiveness, but this was really it for this generation. Their quarreling with God had now reached a point of no return. Look how it continues in verse 20 of chapter 14. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and have seen my signs which I performed in Egypt in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times... And they have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. So this again is the same quarreling. He refers to ten times of testing Israel. There's one more incident of Massa and Meribah that's worth noting. It's found over in chapter 20. And on this occasion, Moses is also indicted by the Lord. Look at chapter 20, uh, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel and the whole congregation came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried. 
And there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. And the people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished with our, when our brothers perished before the Lord. Wish we would have died. Then verse 4, Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us out into this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. And so here again, note their greediness, their complaining, uh, their lusting now after grains and figs and pomegranates, all of these unfilled desires, promises that they could have had in a great abundance if they just would have believed the Lord and entered into the land. But note Moses and Aaron's response, beginning in verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly of the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Here again is gracious provision for the Lord. Simple enough instructions for Moses to obey. But look at verse 9. So Moses took the rod and from, bef- from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water from you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came forth abundantly and the congregation and their beasts drank but the lord said to moses and to aaron because you've not believed me because you've not believed to treat me holy in the sight of the sons of israel therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which i gave them then note, note verse 13 those were the waters of meribah because the sons of israel contended with Yahweh, and he proved himself holy among them. So here now Moses and the people both are contending, both quarreling against God. The people complained again because of what God had withheld from them. Moses complained in his heart because of what God gave him, this rebellious people of Israel. And therefore, he disobeyed, the con- he disobeyed the Lord and had massive consequences as a result. And the text says, these are the waters of Meribah. These are the waters of sinful quarreling against God. And this is the striving against the Lord that we know God hates. Recall that. This is his response. The Lord hates it when we complain. When we test him by doubting his goodness to us, when we fail to, to question his character and his provision in our life, when, when we do this, God hates it. And he hates his people, it says. Return with me now to Psalm 95. Recall out the Lord's said of this people. In Psalm 95, we've seen this invitation to rightly worship God with joyful praise. Then we saw this invitation to rightly worship God in humble obe- obedience adoration before him and now we're considering this invitation to worship in a submissive faith and I think it would be fair to say this last one is most important but look at Psalm 95 verse end of verse 7 again today if you would hear his voice do not harden your hearts as at Meribah as in the days of Masa in the wilderness when your fathers tested me and they tried me though they had seen my work says there that then God loathed this generation of Israel. He was disgusted with them. He loathed them because they always erred in their hearts, verse 10 says. Well, let me read it again. Verse 10, for the 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. They err in their heart. They had a heart problem. It was a desire problem. It was a lust problem. And we just say, may verse 10 never be said of us. 
May it never be said of us, I loathed that generation. God hated them. He despised them because they did not know my ways and because they always erred in their hearts. This is the first generation of Israel just detested by the Lord because they would not submit to the Lord's commands. They, they would not trust him and they rebelled in their hearts against him and they, they complained and they did not know his ways. So they complained in their greediness and they failed to trust God and they failed to obey God. And then it says, therefore, I swore in my anger. In God's anger, his holy anger, he says, they shall not enter my rest. This generation is disqualified. They will not enter. And so as we've seen, all of this quarreling against God and all of this questioning of God's faithfulness and calling into question God's provision for them, it provokes God to anger. And therefore, this generation would die in the wilderness 40 years to see that generation die off completely, including Moses. They, they would not enter God's promised land. They would not enter this place of rest. They would not see the promises fulfilled because they had a faith problem. They failed to believe. Whether their quarreling was against God or against Moses, they erred in their hearts. They were frustrated by what God chose not to give them. They wanted something that God had deprived of them, and as a result, they tested God. They erred in their hearts. And here I can't help but think of James chapter 4, verses 1 1 and 2, when James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, just on a human level? What's What's the source behind all of your problems? Is not the source your pleasures? your desires, your, your lusts, that, that wage war in your members. It says, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, James says. So here's the source of all of our conflict. It's just unmet desires. We desire things and God says no, and we get angry and we complain, so we fight against one another. So conflict is really the the result of failing to trust God for what he's given us and then just taking it out on others. And complaining is the result of failing to trust God for what he has or has not given us and then just taking it out on God by complaining. So either way, it's an error of our hearts and it's rebellion against God and it's sinful. And so the message of the conclusion of Psalm 95 is, look, if you desire to worship God rightly, do not do this. Do not harden your hearts. And it says, today, if you would hear God's voice, this is a message for every generation. Today, if you would hear God's heart, trust him. Be content with his provision. Do not err in your heart. Be content with what God has given you. Or be content with what God has withheld from you. Do not lust after a a different house or a different husband or a a different position of some kind or whatever. Don't complain and don't get bitter in your heart when something has been taken from you. Don't grumble against the Lord for his provision. We must be content to trust the Lord for whatever he's given us in this life, trusting in his promises, awaiting a, a heavenly city, looking beyond this life. And so therefore, true worship is characterized by submit, submissive faith, submissive trust in God. And so we can have all of the emotional worship in the world, but if you do not have a submissive faith, really all is lost. And so the psalmist leaves his reader with a warning, just echoing in our ears. Today, do not harden your heart. Do not test the Lord. Do not grumble against him, lest you fail to enter God's rest. And this, again, is a warning applicable in every age. Today, do not harden your hearts. In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews would pick up on this language to give a similar message there. But the message, again, is the same. It's If you desire to worship God rightly, then really we must worship him in the way he calls us to. We must worship him joyfully with songs of praise, as Psalm 95 tells us. We must worship him in just humility before him. And finally, we must worship him in 
submissive faith, knowing that when God deprives us of something, and our response is to harden our hearts and complain against him or complain against man, we're testing God. We're questioning his goodness and his character. And we know what God thinks of it. He hates it. He hates it. He loathes it. God is not pleased. He's not worshipped rightly. And so in view of all of the mercy that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ, Again, let us present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God. This is our spiritual service of worship. Let us not harden our hearts before him. So as we seek to obey this, let's ask the Lord for help. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we thank you for this word about worship tucked away in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. Uh, Lord, we... We see the propensity in our own hearts. We, we rightly question our own hearts. We, we see our desire to complain, how quick it is to be critical of others, to be critical of things in life when things don't work out the way we want them to, and how quick we are to question your will, either if we're consciously doing that or subconsciously doing that. Lord, we just pray that you would give us soft hearts before you, that we would quiet our hearts before you, and that we would just pray, Lord, whatever you choose to give us, whatever you choose to direct us in this life, trials, tribulations, or success and joy, Lord, would we just have quiet, submissive hearts before you that trust you, trust your provision, and, and rightly worships you as the God of the universe. You are the great king. You reign over everything. And Lord, we of all people have so many reasons to rejoice you have opened up our minds to understand the gospel. You have given your son to us. You have forgiven us of our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have declared us righteous, although we're not righteous, God. We, we still have sin in our hearts. We know it, but yet you've declared us righteous. And yet you help us to grow in holiness. And so we have so much to be thankful for. So God, just please keep us all back from complaining. Lord, keep us back from testing you, but instead that we just worship you with our lives. Would we just shout joyful praises to you in song? Would we humbly bow ourselves before you in our hearts, and we just trust your sovereign provision? And God, we know that without your spirit, we are helpless to do these things. And without your spirit and your intervention, I think we would be just like that people in Israel, complaining about missing the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. So keep us back from that, God. We thank you for your grace poured out for us. And we pray this together in Jesus' holy name. Amen.